0: Good evening, and welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. Uh, My name is Andrew Schwartz, and I'm with CSIS. Uh, It's a true pleasure to welcome you here. uh, And I'd like to acknowledge some true American heroes who are sitting in our front row, Judge Webster, General Hayden, we're really glad to see you all here, Uh, Mrs. Hayden, so nice to see you. Um, This is a wonderful occasion. It's the launch of Victor Cha, my colleague Victor Cha's book. Uh, There are plenty of copies out there, so don't just buy one, buy two. They're great (laughs) gifts. and it's really the first commercial book that's ever come out about North Korea. So it's, a, it's an excellent read, uh, and I'm sure you all will like it. Before we get to the discussion, um, I just want to acknowledge the fact that you're in the presence of Bob Schieffer, who is number one on Sunday morning. Let's give it up for Bob. We're <laughs> very proud of Bob. and. and Went to an hour, the, the network gave them an hour now, and, and boy, is it the ratings are up. I saw a statistic today, it's up 20% in most areas. Uh, really terrific. But thank you for coming, and uh, I hope you enjoy our program. Thank you very
1: much, uh, Andrew, and thanks to all of you for coming. This ought to be fun today, because this is something we all don't know very much about, and it's good to have some people that know something about it. Uh, uh, Victor Cha, who has uh, written this book, uh, joined CSIS in May of 2009 uh, as a senior advisor and is the inaugural holder of the uh, Korea chair. He is also a professor of government uh, and director for Asian studies at Georgetown. Uh, he served as director of, the Asia- of Asian affairs at the White House on the uh, National Security Council from 2004 to 2007, and he has just written this book. The Impossible State, North Korea, Past and Present. It's uh, out this week, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Stephen Lee Myers, over on the end there, is the uh, diplomatic correspondent uh, at the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. He worked two years in Baghdad, served as the White House correspondent in 2007 and 8. Before that, he was the correspondent and bureau chief uh, in Moscow. He's covered the State Department and the Pentagon, written extensively. Uh, on North Korea. Uh, General Walter Sharp uh, commanded the UN uh, command in Korea, uh, the United States Combined Forces Command and the United States Forces Korea from June 2008 until June uh, July 2011. He has also commanded uh, troops in the Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, uphold democracy in Haiti, and uh, SFOR's multinational division in Bosnia. He graduated from West Point and was commissioned uh, an armor officer. And I believe your son-in-law went to TCU? Yes? He did. Yes,
2: sir. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: well, let's just start out. Uh, Victor, this is, uh, this is your hour. Uh, we want to talk about your book. Uh, title is intriguing, The Impossible State. Why is it impossible?
3: Well, um, well, thank you, Bob, for um, hosting this and, and um, for recommending the book as you did on the back cover. I really do appreciate it. Um, I think th- we chose the title because uh, in many ways it's impossible in several respects. I think in one respect um, it's, it's a very opaque government and society that is virtually impossible to truly understand or predict in terms of its behavior. Um, And I think it's also impossible in the sense that, you know, we are living in a day and age where uh, we've all witnessed the collapse of the Soviet Union, Soviet bloc countries, the Arab Spring, and yet in spite of um, the limited lifetime of a lot of these closed societies, politically closed societies, um, you still have this country, North Korea, that's probably the most isolated of all of them, that still manages to putter on and That is just, you know, it kind of defies common sense. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this.
1: Well, Stephen, you can testify to how hard it is to find out things about North Korea. Uh, How hard is it to find out what's going on there?
4: Usually I call Victor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It it is impossible to know. I mean, as you mentioned, that there are so many so many more means of communication, uh, access to countries. But this is one that very few get to ever see at all. Um, And if they do, there's usually quite a bit of uh, uh, constraint in terms of the government minders and so forth. So I think it's very difficult to have Mm -hmm. a a clear picture of the kind of even the society or the people and what they think. Um, What's what's good about the book, I think, is that it sheds some light on some of the thinking um, of of the government, and if you look back know to the uh, to the beginning um, uh, after independence that you know the <coughs> mentality that that drives the state uh, has a lot of support within the, the country but it's really hard to understand you know how they're able to sustain you know I can't even think of it as popular support but uh, there is an ideology that the North Koreans embrace
2: you know though it's it's the the glimpses we do get from some of the defectors that have come out and some folks that have been able to get out of North Korea is, is pretty shocking about the labor camps, the concentration camps, the inability to be able to trust your neighbor, not knowing who your real friend is, the fear that they have of just leaving what will happen to their family And I think that shows what the Kim regime has done for many years to try to maintain the isolation and state that they have there so that the people of North Korea don't understand what freedom's about, what democracy about, what human rights are about, and they have the power structure in place to enforce
1: that. Well, General, what was it like dealing with them? I mean, how much much did you deal with the North Koreans? Uh, very little.
2: Uh, as United Nations Command Commander, we had, I think in the three years I was there, we probably had three or four colonel-level talks. Uh, we had one general officer-level talks with the, with the KPA at Panwajon, uh, surrounding, uh, mostly surrounding the when North Korea sunk the, the Chunin uh, and had those discussions. Uh, but really, those led absolutely nowhere. And when you
1: talk to them, uh, is there any ad living ever is it all all no, it's just all, on it's all, it's all very very scripted and very and very, very formal. Victor yeah. uh, how were you able to uh put together enough information to write a book I mean it must this must have been quite an assignment. <laughs> it's
2: a long um, book too. Yeah, it's a long <laughs> book too. Longer than I thought it was going to
3: be. The, uh well you know um um it was something that was in my head uh after you know, studying the country as a scholar and then working on the issue when I was in government uh, and then making a trip there also while I was in government. I, when I got out in 2007, though, I was really not of the mind of writing on it at all. And it was only, I guess, five years later where I thought that, um, uh, y- you know, it was time to write something on it. The book itself is, you know, it, it covers, it's sort of a book for a general audience. It goes through the history of the country and. Why they they did they felt they did so well during the Cold War and about the leadership about the nuclear problem. So it was um, it it has no particular uh, uh, agenda to it. It was really just meant to be something that uh, you know that the general audience hears about North Korea, this very distant place, and 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 yet it's often in the news, and it would, I thought this would be something that would interest them in trying to understand. Well, I mean, government. I
1: certainly learned a lot about it. This is something I knew almost nothing about, except, you know, just following it in the papers over the years.
3: Uh, I'd like to
1: hear from all of you, uh, who do we think is in charge there?
3: Uh-huh. Well, uh, you know, I think th- there are lots of theories about this. I mean, we know that Kim Jong-il, the second leader of North Grid, died suddenly of a massive heart attack in December of 2011. Do we
1: know how old he was? Uh, the, the, the
3: one who died.
1: Hell,
4: he, was, <laughs> he was old, old enough. I mean, yeah. He was in like like his that. late late sixties,
3: I uh-huh. think. And uh, and so there was this. has been this rushed power transition to the son, who we think is um, about 28 years old. Uh, there've been there were really no pictures of him until September 2010, um, when they had a major party conference. And so I think you know the the bet essentially is is that this guy is in charge. He may have people around him that are helping him. He has an uncle and an aunt who are helping him, a couple of generals in particular. But um, you know, my own view is that uh, I don't think they rule as a committee. I just think that the political culture of this place is such that any decision of national sig- significance has always been taken by one person, and that is. The direct descendant of, of the Kim Il Sung line, and so I think while he may have people around him that are helping him, in the end, decisions are being made by this 28-year-old. Well, how did he get the job? I mean,
1: you his all name talk. is Kim. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is it that his dad said, "I want him," and, Absolutely. and everybody went along with that. Absolutely, and
2: his father did, uh, even in the limited amount of time that they had, a lot to be able to get him the power structure in order to be able to start coalescing power around him. I mean, we know that he was involved in the attacks, both attacks, in 2010, Kim Jong-un, to try to get his military prowess up. He's been officially brought into several of, of, the, uh, of the government positions. And there's going to be another conference, I guess, here in another couple of days that we believe he'll get another uh, power, uh, power position. But it clearly his, it was his father's decision, his father's decision that made it.
1: How, uh, Stephen, what can you what can you add here? I mean, how long will that be good enough to keep him in power? Just because his daddy said he's the one.
4: Well, you wonder about any kind of monarchy, really, um, that how long it can sustain itself, and it seems to be quite durable. And one of the things I heard from administration officials in the last few weeks since since the transition is that they see it. Not even so much like a monarchy, but more like a criminal racket um, that this family is the head of. And you know, as you've seen with the mafia or so forth, you know, people die, and there needs to be a new leader, and, and that sometimes requires a transition and consolidation of power and so forth. But they seem to have pulled it off rather well.
1: Is that? Do you agree with that analogy? Because I've I've heard people say, you know, when. When you deal with uh, sometimes when we deal with governments, yes, they may be corrupt, but it is some criminal organization. In this, in this case, we're dealing directly with the criminal element. We're du- dealing directly with the mob. They're the ones that uh, counterfeit the money. They're the ones that uh, export drugs and, and all of the other.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a fair analogy. I, the, the, these illicit activities that they engage in are largely to raise hard currency, because economically they made a choice a long time ago not to, not to export you know, normal things uh, to gain hard currency, to purchase food, these sorts of things. And it's largely been through these illicit activities that, ha- that they have been able to finance their proliferation and their nuclear programs. Um, you know, I think that there is, there is a, certainly a view that this regime and the way it is run in terms of the elite political leadership also re- resembles something of a mafia-type organization in the sense that you have one big boss and, and decisions are made pretty abruptly and pretty dr- in a pretty draconian fashion. And if you don't s- keep in line with that, then you can find yourself having a car accident at some point or, or ending up in a, you know, in a gulag. So. Um,
1: Last month, the United States and North Korea announced a, a food for a nukes agreement. Uh, does this uh, hold out any hope for a return to the Six-Party Talks? Or w- w- I'd just like to get the, your, your, all of your sense of what this amounts to.
3: Well, I, I think when the agreement was, uh, was reached at the end of February that there was some hope that it might lead back to a process um, um, in terms of the denuclearization talks that were left at the end of the Bush administration um, in in the six-party format. Um, I mean, I think the administration, rightly, when they announced it, were very modest about it. They didn't, they they said it was a first step. But I still think, while they said it was a very modest first step, I think on the inside, they probably had some aspirations. They thought they were really going to get someplace uh, with this agreement. Only a few days after the agreement was made, uh, the North Koreans announced that they were going to do a satellite uh, slash ballistic missile test, um, which completely went against at least the spirit. Um, there was no actual letter to the agreement; there were just parallel statements. It certainly went against the spirit of the agreement, in my opinion. I think in the administration's view as well, and uh, and for that reason, I don't think we're uh, we're going to see any sort of return to the negotiations anytime soon. If anything. I think um that the situation could get worse from here
1: well i mean do you do you all what is your sense well the agreements uh, you know uh, this food for nukes agreement do you you think that's just going to kind of just fade away or
2: do, do I you think, think it's gone if they,
1: it's if they gone launch yeah. if they launch yeah,
2: yeah maybe you could you could make the case it should be gone now anyway because they have even prior to the launch. If you read what's in UN Security Council resolution, they've broken that agreement because they've clearly worked on missile technology in the interim in order to be able to even get ready to do another thing. And that is, it violates UN Security Council resolution. So they've violated agreements already.
1: Uh, Stephen, did you have
4: anything? Else? Well, I would just say that they. Um, they did have some expectation that this deal would work. You know, they began working on it last summer um, after a period of what they called strategic patience while they just basically waited until uh, North Korea was ready to talk again. And then they showed signs. Um, you know, we sent the envoy there. And there were, I think, four rounds of negotiations. The dear leader died, and they thought that would put everything on hold. And then, much to their surprise, there was this agreement in February to go ahead and um, uh, resume these talks, and we committed aid to that. And then. Going back to what we said about not understanding them, 16 days later they they announced that they're going to do this test. I was told that it was an explicit pledge, that there was a discussion about satellite launches in those talks. Um, And people in the administration now feel like they were just lied to. Um, the, The president is said to be very upset about this because I do think they had some expectation that if they committed to this. Mind you, in an election year here, you know, the engagement uh, policy, you know, comes under attack sometimes from the Republican Party, Um, though, you know, administrations from both parties have pursued more or less the same idea. Um, I think that they, um, uh, they really felt a sense of betrayal, but also confusion, because why would there have been such a change after such a short amount of time? And I agree. I mean, they've said explicitly they won't go ahead with the food. Uh, aid if this uh-huh. launch happens.
1: So, General, what, what really are the implications? I mean, do we have any idea what it is? What does that mean, we're going to launch a satellite? Do we know what they're going to do, or do we have a sense of what means? Well, if we, if we look
2: back at, um, at the previous two launches, you know, the first launch was uh, terrible. It blew up basically off the launch pad. The second launch uh, in 2009 went a lot further. The first two stages worked very well, and uh, then they had problems with the third stage. Uh, I believe that it's a continuing effort to develop a ballistic missile that can be successful in order to be able to carry a nuclear weapon anywhere in the world. I believe that's what their goal is, so that they feel then that they would not be able to be threatened by, by any country. Uh, the technology, I'm convinced that they are continuing to be able to develop it. I mean, even if this one is successful and does get something into space, they still have other challenges they have to get through. They have to be able to develop a reentry vehicle. They have to be able to prove that they have miniaturized a nuclear, cap- a nuclear weapon. and Those are not trivial tasks. But they, they clearly are continuing the development, and, and this is a logical progression for them to be able to, within a several years. Be able to get to the point where they do have that capability. Do we
1: know how many nuclear weapons they have, or is that classified? No, we don't. I mean, we have. We can make
2: estimates based upon how much plutonium we believe that they have reprocessed, and that number, I think, uh, is somewhere you know six to ten nuclear weapons, capable-wise from that. But how big? Uh, fairly small ones. Uh, But the. We do not, but you know, fairly small yeah. relative in nuclear <laughs> <Yeah>. world. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but you know, uh, have they developed more plutonium elsewhere? How far along are they in the HEU program? Uh, you know, are they going to do another nuclear test this year or sometime soon? That may be an HEU one. Uh, I think is a is is something that we ought to really be watching for, and, and really strongly saying you
1: better not do that. Uh, Victor, I mean, I'm asking you to read minds here, and these are hard minds to read. But why would they make an agreement like this and then just turn right around in a matter of weeks, actually, and say, "Yeah, oh, by the way, we're also going to launch a satellite." Yeah, I mean, they they don't see the connection, or did they? Or
3: I mean, it's a very good question. You know, I, I I think we can all sort of try to come up with theories as to why they've done this. It is puzzling behavior. I think. One theory is that uh, you know, th- maybe there are hardliners and softliners in North Korea. And softliners went out in getting the agreement, and the hardliners went out and getting the test done. Um, the other end, and so I think there's that. I mean, I, I tend to agree with General Sharp, uh, which is that um, uh, even though this may look like puzzling behavior, it is, we have to think of it as a part of a systematic effort program, really, that is decades old to try to get to the point where they can deliver um, uh, uh, nuclear-tipped missiles um, to, you know, anywhere in the world and basically try to achieve, in their own minds, the ultimate um, security um, um, umbrella in that sense. Um, and then another, may s- another reason why they may do this is, you know, they may honest. I mean, I think they do, they honestly believe that in- there is a difference between a satellite launch and a ballistic missile test. Um, now, this completely contravenes every standing U.N. Security Council statement, which has said you cannot work on missile technology, as the general said, and you cannot launch anything that uses ballistic missile technology. But in their own minds, they, they, they seem to believe this. And they seem to be going through a process right now where they are actively inviting um, Western media, Western and other international media, to come to North Korea and observe. Uh, this to uh, uh, have a look at this satellite and see that it is not a warhead and have a look at the, the uh, celebrations and all of this so um, they are really um, uh, they are really going to try to make the argument that what they're putting in space is completely for civilian purposes and that is the sole purpose of of this test The problem of course is that the test itself uh, is a demonstration of ballistic missile technology
1: how does China view North Korea What is the Chinese view of all these things we're talking about?
2: General? Uh, Unfortunately, China has not been very helpful uh, to be able to turn North Korea into a a more open country that believes in human rights and taking care of their people. Um, If you look back on the attacks in in 2010, China was actually um, worked against a lot of countries that were trying to really... Put the hammer down on North Korea because of the sinking of the Chennan and the, the attack on on Ypido. But having said that, I, I also, you know, believe that China kind of likes that buffer state between themselves and South Korea. Um, and uh, what I we all hope, and I'm sure our diplomats <coughs> continuing to work on it, is to tell China that you know a nuclear capable North Korea or a North Korea that continues to do the provocations and the attacks they've had in the past are of no benefit. In fact, they, they, they are against the vital and national interest of China also. And so how do you try to push China and make that weight of saying, OK, it really is time to change North Korea uh, is very, very difficult.
1: What do you think, Stephen?
4: Well, you could probably overestimate China's influence on North Korea. Um, I'm not sure they really respond to anyone, uh, clearly. Um, the I mean, Russia as well is a neighbor, and I don't think uh, anybody in the region or anybody in the world really wants to see them um, with nuclear weapons. But they also look uh, somewhat cynically, perhaps, about what the alternative might be. I mean, a Korean unification, for example, probably means a uh, pro-U.S. Uh, democracy being established on the peninsula. And I don't think either Russia or China would want to see that either. So. In some ways, as much as they may be alarmed by the uh, dangerous behavior or the escalation, uh, <laughs> they probably like the status quo, which is a good reason why it's lasted as long as it has. Yeah.
1: Well, That's, I mean, it,
4: no, it, it, I agree with you that China
2: has not been able to influence or chosen not to influence North Korea. I do believe if China cut all aid off and said, unless you do the following, you're not getting any food, you're not getting any help with fuel to, 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 so your jets can fly, that would make a difference. Uh,
4: but that might also encourage the collapse of the regime, which they're also afraid of.
2: Is exactly. But, but, you know, to the question of whether they could, China could, I believe they do have the capability to be able to do it if they really pushed it.
1: Uh, but, you know, really, when you think back on it, and I learned this from reading Henry Kissinger's book. China. Historically, China has always seen one way to defend itself is to keep turmoil going with these states around it. And they always try to find an enemy for the state that butts up against them. And, and, and uh, they've done that uh, down through history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the, the possibility of an economic collapse? How are the uh, North Korean people?
3: Um, well, I think if you go to Pyongyang, uh, the city of Pyongyang, uh, people will say that the situation looks fairly good, that uh, people are clothed, they look to be uh, buying things in stores and all this. But I mean, that's really not a good indicator of the overall national economic situation, uh, which, is, uh, it, which is clearly in a very bad state. Um, the food situation is not getting any better. They have chronic food shortages of over a million metric tons every year. Um, and the economy just has ground to a halt, um, largely because it's been mismanaged because of political ideology. Um, so uh, there, there really isn't an economic future to the country. Having said that, there are, you know, the, the northern part of the Korean peninsula is, um, in terms of natural re- resources, fairly rich right. in terms of coal, uh, other sorts of uh, minerals, copper, gold. And other things, and one of the reasons why the Chinese, I think, are quite vested in North Korea, despite its current state and its current behavior, is because really, from about uh, four or five years ago, they have decided to invest very heavily in the extraction of these mineral resources from North Korea to um, to basically help to economically uh, benefit these two provinces, northeastern provinces that sit adjacent to North Korea. Inland provinces that are not doing very well economically compared to China's coastal provinces. Um, so there, there, you know, all politics is local. I mean, for China, there is a domestic, local politics reason for why they're doing this, as well. In addition to the to the very good points that both Stephen and and Skip raised.
1: Uh, what if there, if there were an economic uh, collapse in North Korea? Uh, I mean, is that likely, or do you think it, in the end uh, would China let that happen? Well, but what would happen? Would these people pour into South Korea? Would they pour into China? Uh, yeah, you could just yeah. envision all sorts of things happening. What do you think?
3: About I, that? I think the the, the main the, the main concern for 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 the Chinese would be sort of a flow of refugees that start moving across the Yalu River, a very porous border between North and South Korea, uh, North Korea and China. Uh, and, and this, in many ways, is China's nightmare. They don't want all of those people coming in for a variety, for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, the economy, for all intents and purposes, is has closed. collapsed <laughs> yeah. already. Uh, and it's, it's totally dysfunctional. And there have been some projects that the South Koreans have done, uh, particularly during the period of, of sunshine policy under Kim Dae-jung and Noh Mui-hun, Kaesong Industrial Complex, um, the, uh, the Diamond Mountain Project, Tourism Project. Uh, but these are not really—they're not really examples of North Korean economic reform because they're, they are done in such a way that the North Korean government completely encloses these projects, so they, they don't have a broader effect on society. And so these largely become ways for uh, the North Korean government to get cash, to get hard currency, uh, without. Uh, uh, implementing a real economic reform. You know, what would t- they do, General? You know, to, the, uh, to that point,
2: the whole issue of food aid and whether countries should be giving food aid to North Korea kind of goes into this whole economic question too. You know, from China giving food aid to us giving food aid in the past, as long as food aid is going in there, North Korea is not forced to change an economic system that they have in place in order to be able to feed their people to at least some degree. So the money that they do get goes into their military. It goes into the ballistic missiles and the nuclear capability. And until the world is able to force North Korea to be able to open more up to export some of these things, with the idea that the money then will establish a system in North Korea that can feed itself, um, we will continue to spiral down, I believe, in you know, the problems that we have that North Koreans have with feeding their people will get even worse into the future.
1: Stephen, uh, how is North, I mean, how is South Korea reacting to the events in North Korea right now? What What is South Korea's policy toward North Korea? What, what do they want?
4: Uh, the, I, mean, I think they want what, you know, everybody wants. on. The, on the immediate issue of the the launch, I mean, I, I think this launch, you know, it terrifies people because what is the next step? And somebody told me just today that they, if we follow this movie again, as we've been through many times, you're going to see it, uh, a launch and then possibly another nuclear test. Um, this uh, this rattled nerves all over the region. Um, whether or not they can, I, I mean, I think South Korea now, Victor would know better than I do, has taken a harder line, much more. Uh, Uh, closer to the U.S. point of view, Uh, the relationship seems very, very close between the the presidents Um, and, you know, whether or not, I mean, and that seems to, you know, provoke North Korea and some of their statements and so forth. Um, On the question of food aid, I just wanted to add one thing that the difficulty uh, for the people who have to make these decisions is that nobody wants to see people starve to death. Uh, in North Korea or the Horn of Africa. So it's a real dilemma to, you know, link the food aid um, directly to the broader talks. And generally, and they still insist that they don't, um, but the North Koreans uh, made it a condition of resuming the talks. And so the U.S. went along, as we have before, in providing the aid, but it's really hard to just say no, you know, starve. Uh, Be
1: thinking of some questions. I'll keep this going while you're thinking of questions if you want to. We have a lot of experts here today, and so we'll go to that. But uh, let me just ask you this uh, as we get ready for that. Uh, does anyone here
3: think there's any chance of reunification? Um, well, I, I certainly think it's it's a, it's a part of Korea's future. Um, I think that's sort of the natural state of international relations in that part of the world. The divided peninsula is a historical aberration. Uh, I think that, um, um, you know, I think that there, I- I- you have to sort of think, what are the confluence of forces that could lead to a possible unification scenario? And, and so the things that come to mind, for me at least, are you know, continued food problems, um, uh, continued collapsed economy, and then um, difficulty at the level of the leadership. And so I think we have two of those conditions right now. And all of us are just watching. All of us who watch this are watching very carefully to see um, what we can see about this new leadership. And that's sort of the big question, and so all the talk about the, this missile test and, and, and the food agreements, these are all um, trying to gi- give us ways of understanding how this leadership operates, whether it's competent and all, all of these other things. Uh, but for the most part, because the signals are so conflicting, it's, it's, really, it's really guesswork. And President Obama himself self even said at one point after um, they announced, you know, first they had the agreement and then they announced the. The test. He even said himself, "We're not sure who's in charge in in, in DPRK," and and so that itself is pretty revealing in terms of we, what is going on at the leadership level. That is really the key to what holds this system uh, together.
1: Has anything changed? Has anybody noticed any anything, uh, even in a small way, that's changed, General, since yes. the new kid came?
2: Since the new kid came, um, I, I think the the well, what's changed recently, I think, is we've lost all hope that he's going to be different. Yeah. And uh, you know, that, I really didn't put much hope into that from the beginning because of the history of the, of the, of the Kim regime. Um, I, would, I do believe that if when they launch, not if, but when they launch, um, there'll be a, even a stronger push against North Korea to, to try to find ways to force changes within North Korea, maybe even from China. We'll see.
4: Steve? Uh, one thing on the unification, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when the president was there, Obama, uh, just recently, he talked about that being the ultimate goal. Yeah. And I think he went further than any other American president in stating that so clearly. And I wonder if that's not going to increase the paranoia of the North Korean uh, government, it, especially since the end of the Cold War and they lost the Soviet support, has seen them, their international standing diminish. and you know they've responded to that with this with the missiles and nuclear uh, program so you you wonder if that's just going to fuel them because i think they would see unification as a disaster it would be the, end of the, be the end of the regime
3: it yeah. would fuel but, them yes. and it would also fuel it feels the chinese too mm-hmm. that's the last thing they want to see i mean we would weird.
4: all hope that it would be like germany and there would be a mostly but peaceful transition and reunification but it's really hard to imagine that
2: but on the chinese issue i mean and we've tried I, I think. But at some point, when things really get to the point where China realizes we've got to make some changes and we'd like to do this well before that, we in South Korea and China need to sit together and say, what does a reunified peninsula look like? How are China's vital national interests accommodated and maybe even increased? What port access? What mineral rights? Who's going to pay for what? What are the refugees? I guess I'm an optimist that I do believe that between China, United States, the Republic of Korea, a reunified peninsula could be of the benefit to all three of those countries and not just to the United States and the Republic of Korea.
1: All right. Well, let's go to some questions out in the audience for a while right here and then the lady back there. Go ahead. Here comes the microphone.
5: Thanks so much. Uh, Chris Nelson, Nelson Report. Thanks for the very good questions, Bob. I've been able to do a lot of reporting on this the last couple of weeks. And uh, it seems clear to the point General Sharp just made that uh, 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 is the new, the new leader any different from the old leader? Certainly, the North Korean diplomats are making this argument. And Track 2's in Germany and in uh, Sweden over the weekend uh, they were uh, almost pleading that point. You know, give, this is the new team here. We're the young guys. We understand, uh, you know, how out of it we are. Give us a chance. Don't overreact to this stuff. Uh, they're also claiming it's a big misunderstanding. Uh, and I understand uh, from today that actually uh, Kim Goigon, one of the older <laughs> negotiators, uh, sent a letter to. Uh, to especially by Glenn Davis towards the end of March, saying, "Well, of course we all, we always told you that uh, the, we were going to do this peaceful missile. I don't see what the problem is." Uh, of course, after the announcement, he tells them that. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how, uh, well, uh, it, whether this lo- this new line uh, actually makes sense. Uh, uh, is it possible that? that the kid simply couldn't say no at this point because the decision was made by dad, after all, to honor the, the, the great leader himself, uh, and that this, this idea that we should give him a little slack after the launch, uh, how does that play out? I think we can all imagine the criticism of Obama if he doesn't do anything, but, but we're also looking yeah. at the strategic risks that we've got here, because if they do launch and we do launch new sanctions, then uh, and almost everybody agrees there's a pretty good chance we're going to see an, a nuclear test this year and uh, maybe even the HEU test. And
1: yeah, we well don't want that either. So Get the panel's reaction. Yeah. Start
3: with Victor. Um, um, well, I do participate in some of these track twos um, since the new leadership has come on board. And um, and some of the language that the, you know, and they send their negotiators, people that we negotiated with during the Bush administration, yeah. the same people that are still there today. And they, they've sort of, the language is a little bit different, but I think you know they they're making the same point that the foreign ministry north american affairs bureau of the DPRK always makes which is end your hostile policy um and uh you know normalize relations with us peace treaty all, all all this sort of stuff now um we all know the fact that they want those things is 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 i mean in many ways fine for the united states if they give up you know verifiably and irreversibly their nuclear weapons. But I think what has become clear, really over 25 years of negotiating uh, with North Korea, and in the book I go back to the Reagan administration and track every administration, what has become clear is that uh, the North Koreans don't want to trade complete denuclearization for normalization. They want they want normalization, and they want to keep some semblance of, of a nuclear program. And, so they want their own version of the India deal, which, um, which they're never going to get. And I remember one time on the sidelines of negotiations, and General Hayden's here, J.D. Crouch is here, one time on the sidelines of the Six-Party Negotiations, the, the North Koreans said off, you know, just in sidebars, they said, you know, you should, you should really think of us like in terms of the India deal. And we said, whatever we think of the India deal, you're not India. India's the largest <laughs> democracy in the world, you're not India. And they said, well, you should at least think of us like Pakistan. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and then, so we thought about that and we said, you don't want us to treat you like Pakistan. <laughs> <that's laughs>
1: <that. laughs> Anybody want to add to that?
2: I mean, it's, it's you know, it's the Kim regime. And uh, been, been you know, imagine a son changing the whole regime structure so much, the whole economy so much. And then the people of North Korea finding out what the rest of the world is like, what are they going to think of Kim Jong il and Kim Il sung? And when you go beyond just the family heredity, the fact that this regime is actually living pretty well and has pretty, you know, for many years, a whole heck of a lot better than the normal people there. And I think they realize that if there's change made, it's the end of that regime because it will be forced on by the people of North Korea. David.
4: Just on the question of how we respond afterwards, I mean, there's really not much more we can do in terms of sanctions. Uh, It's probably the most heavily sanctioned nation on Earth. Uh, So I I would bet that you would see a return to strategic patience. You know, we try not to overreact to the launch. Hopefully it won't be too provocative or something go disastrously wrong, like, one of the neighboring countries trying to shoot it down, or it escalating into a conflict, or um, fall
2: unintentionally, in or land in
4: yeah, exactly land in China. That might change the dynamic a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, I uh, I imagine you'll just see us return to this impasse again, and hope that a year from now they reconsider again.
2: You know, if, let me just make a point on that. People talk about the cycle of provocations in North Korea that we've seen over over many decades. And people talk about the status quo and just the status quo. Well, I think we all gotta remember that this cycle, you don't return to the same place. Because while the cycle is going on and they get food aid and they, they get regime legitimacy inside the country, and you then repeat the cycle again, all the while they have increase the development of their ballistic missiles, their nuclear capability, and they are a much more dangerous country. So I don't like the word status quo because it truly is not. It just gets worse and worse over time. And the longer this progresses, the longer it takes for a change to happen in North Korea, the more dangerous it's going to get. I mean, imagine having this discussion several years from now, you pick the time four or five years from now, and things are really starting to collapse, and they do have a ballistic missile and a nuclear capability, and much more special ops capability to be able to do, to really try to do something very dangerous in order to be able to keep the regime in power. It really becomes dangerous the longer can, we wait. Can I just, can I just sure. add on
3: to that? I mean, I think you know, on both of these comments, I think, um, I mean, all of us now are focused on whether they do this launch. Um, but I, I think, you know, this, this could really change things, I think. Um, I mean if they are successful in putting a satellite into orbit that would say a lot about advances in terms of ballistic missile technology uh, and create really a new kind of strategic reality on the peninsula and for the United States because, you know, this 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 is a case where we've always thought they're driving towards this, but if they actually succeed in putting a satellite into orbit. Um, that potentially means they have technology where they could reach, you know, Alaska, Hawaii, or even Western United States and be really the first country outside of the Soviet Union and China, you know, that is un- unfriendly to the United States that could do this. And and so I think for the Obama administration and, you know, and future administrations, this becomes a real, a real problem. And, uh, and I think you know, for President Obama especially, I mean, he made this deal at the end of February because you know, arguably they didn't want any provocations in an election year. And they wanted to get eyes on this uranium program, which has been going really completely untouched for the past decade. And, um, and uh, this, with this missile launch, they're going to get a provocation. And they're, go- they're not going to get the IAEA inspectors into this uranium facility. And so it, I think it's a real problem. And, I don't know if they can just stick with strategic patience. I think they have to find an answer
4: to this, particularly this year. What would that answer be? I don't
3: know. I mean, I don't know what the answer would be. I mean, there's some predictable things going to the UN Security Council, seeing if you can get more than a presidential statement that you got in 2009. I think some of these things are quite predictable, but I think, I mean, they're going to some of these things may not be public. I mean, I think the military, we have military experts here, are going to have to start thinking about countermeasures as well, but... um, Mm. I mean, how, how about, how
2: about a, a policy that uh, clearly say, states that, uh, that uh, we're not going to stand for this in the future, and uh, what that means is that uh, the Kim regime has to go. And I'm not advocating that there's an attack or anything like that, but to make it a, fr- a clear policy of the United States and that uh, we want a free North Korea that, uh, that, that accounts for human rights and accounts for freedoms of the people. Uh, but there, you, are, there are military things that we can do, too. I mean, again, I'm not advocating for attack, but we can strengthen our defenses over do there. Do we
1: have the, you know, Lyndon Johnson used to say, don't ever tell a man to go to hell unless you can make it. Right. Do we, <laughs> do we have the capability to do what, what you're saying here? We have the
2: capability, yes. I mean, I, I believe that we have the capability. There's no doubt in my mind if North Korea attacked, that we would win. I'm yeah. I know there, there's, there's no doubt in that mind at all. Uh, it is, you know, how far do you try to push within a country like North Korea to force the people of North – to allow the people of North Korea to see what, you know, regime that they've been under for them to try to force some change in North Korea then be ready to support that change? Do you do it sooner where there will be problems, there will be issues? Or do you wait five, six, ten years down the road where when it happens then it's really going to be ugly, potentially ugly because of the increased capability of North Korea? I think, you know, I think Victor is exactly right. This launch, uh, and successful or not, is going to potentially be a real game changer for us to really decide how are we going to try to force a change in North Korea uh, so that we don't end up in a place in several years that... Uh, and maybe not but, even that, that will be really dangerous to the United States, South Korea, and our allies. But
1: is what you're saying here is that we should put the military option on the table
2: No, here? I'm not That's saying, that. if what you mean by the military option is an attack into a regime change like we did in Saddam we say no, I'm not advocating that. That is no, in nobody's interest at all. I uh, what I'm saying, though, is that we ought to try to work very hard if for nothing else, for human rights and so that we don't have, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of North Koreans dying needlessly every year to be able to start really saying we want to free North Korea and doing things in order for, to try to force a change from within. Gotcha. There's a back in the back. Yes, ma'am.
6: Thanks. Elise Labatt from CNN. I was wondering if we could just take this a bit further. I mean, if, as you said, um, that the north every time this happens it gets a little bit dangerous we don't stick with the status quo and it, you know and then we can't stick with strategic patience we know that well, we do know that if north korea undertakes this launch and there's a halt in relations and there's a halt in discussing with them a year from now two years from now we are going to want to get them back to the table just like we always have and i and i kind of think in some ways the united states has delayed this delay with North Korea has helped them acquire the nuclear technology because we keep delaying them and they, we allow them to play for time. So I'm just wondering, can we figure out what the North Koreans really want and see if that's something that we could give to them so that we can end this once and for all? Because I think we're seeing the same thing in Iran. This delay of talks is helping Iran constitute its nuclear program and I think that If we know we're going to bring North Korea back to the table at some point anyway, then is there ever a time that there's going to be a negotiation where um, we give them what they want, they give us what we want?
1: Thanks. Let's start with Victor. It's a good question. People ask the same thing in Vietnam. I was there.
3: Yeah, I mean, Elise, it's a great question. And she's another one of the people who follow this as closely as all of us here on the stage. You know, I think. you know I think there are two things I mean we know what we want from North Korea right uh, and I but I think there are two things that they want one is as I mentioned earlier they want they want their ver- I mean they'll never say this publicly because they would be laughed out of the room but they want their version of an India deal right they want something where they will be able to maintain. they will give up you know their whole plutonium program and maybe portions of their uranium program but they want to maintain some sort of uh, um, uh, uh, uninspected deterrent capability. I think that's one thing. The other thing they want is they want regime assurance. They don't want the end of US hostile policy in the sense that we will not attack North Korea, because every US president, going back to Ronald Reagan, has said we have no intention to attack North Korea. What they want is an assurance (laughs) that if they go through some sort of economic opening or reform, which would naturally lead, as history has shown us, to collapse of uh, these sorts of regimes. They want some sort of assurance that the outside world will help to keep them in, in power. And I think these are obviously two things that no sitting or future president is going to be willing to give North Korea. So this is why I think Elise is, I mean, you're right, we're kind of in a box with this. Uh, and in one sense, the longer we delay, the more they develop their programs, um, and, and so, inevitably every administration seems to get dragged back into some sort of negotiation. Um, I guess I mean the one thing I would say that we, I talk about in the book is I think the, the, you know this one of North Korea's biggest strategic assets is that the North Korea problem has not been a top-line issue for, uh, for a US administration. This is not Iran, it is not Afghanistan or Iraq, it is not the Middle East peace process. Right? And so every time there's a crisis, um, you know, there is a desire to, I mean, we get pulled back into a negotiation. But I think the overall, you know, directive is just to sort of keep this on a low boil. Right? It's not to try to actually solve it, it's to keep it on, on a low boil. And that has been North Korea's greatest strategic asset because, as you say, they can continue to develop their programs. And can
1: I just quickly
2: So so just disregard the U.N. Security Council resolutions. I mean, no, well, I don't- We're going to disregard them anyway when we get them back to the table a year
6: from now, so why don't we just do it now? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure
2: what U.N. Security Council resolution will disregard. Well, when
6: we take them back to the table, that's we're, we're going to look at the past or past violations anyway. I mean, at some point we But that's not against
2: the U.N. Security Council resolution. W- what I'm saying is that we ought to hold very strong and not forget the past. I mean, we have a history of this going over and over and over again and then doing the same thing and us saying, let's give them one more chance for decades. And all along, they've continued to develop a capability that's dangerous. So no, I don't think we should. Stephen?
4: Again, it seems like you have to ask yourself, what are the other options Um, we could try to go back to the Security Council but honestly I'm just not sure what that's I agree with the lease. It's, well, it's the Security not
2: Council resolutions has it to say, I mean, you know, when you you always
4: talk about North Korea I'm
6: sorry to hog the conversation, but you always talk about North Korea being this petulant child. Well, sometimes you punish a
3: petulant child and sometimes you have a petulant child. I don't maybe North Korea needs to be <laughs> Next
1: question. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Right here, all right. Okay, uh, Peter Davies, I'm speaking independently. Okay. Uh, uh, a uh, Here's your uh, a microphone to help. The U.S. Uh, has a policy of not paying ransom for hostages in any um, uh, international situation, but are we not doing exactly this by providing continual food aid? would like to
4: talk about that. Well, I'll point out that we paid bail to get the uh, NGO workers out of Egypt, so I wouldn't say it's such a strong policy. I mean, we don't like to do it, but the uh, again, I go back to the humanitarian point. I mean, I don't think we want people to starve, and uh, we do try to keep that separate. They say, um, but it was explicitly linked in this case, and you know, uh, it's, I mean, essentially, we can pay that bribe if you want to call it that, but we're also going to take it away if they do the launch. So.
1: All right. Over here. Mark Victor, Congratulations, Greg Book.
5: I'm looking forward to finishing
2: it.
3: Oh, no, thank you. Patrick Cronin, I want to ask you explicitly the question of could we and our allies, should we and our allies a week from now, shoot down that missile?
4: General. General?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we could. <laughs> could we? Could we?
2: Absolutely. It would take We could. Absolutely. Um, should we, should, we, should we do it, uh, I mean, once you do that, you've made a lot of decisions as to what comes after that. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, the immediate answer is no, we should not shoot it down. Anybody think we should?
3: No, I, I don't think we should, but I mean, I think that, the, I mean, what we, the concern is that a lot of things can go wrong with these sorts of tests. And in many ways, we've been incredibly lucky thus far. Um, you know, there have been tests in the past that have failed, and without getting into details, if they had failed just a little bit later or just a little mm-hmm. bit earlier, the consequences could have potentially been disastrous in terms of where pieces of those, of those uh, failed launch vehicles could have fallen. So, um, uh, and you know, I think this is why the Japanese and the South Koreans are so concerned and are very public about mobilizing and getting ready to do something in case a scenario were to occur like that.
1: I've got to uh, that reminds me I've, we've got to wrap up here, but before we do i I do want to ask the question that somehow I should have asked early in this discussion. where are our our allies on all of this? so where is Australia, where is Japan uh, and where is South Korea
3: um, well, I think the 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 Japanese and the South Koreans are very much with us on this I mean they they face uh, a threat from these missile from these missile tests and um, while they were willing to go the diplomatic path uh, that was tried last month, I think at this point they're, um, you know, trying to brace themselves uh, for this test. Australia is not a member of the Six-Party Talks, but they have been very actively involved in um, the sanctions that have been used against North Korea, and they've been very actively involved um, in, uh, in a variety of different aspects of, of North Korea policy, so I think they're all. Um, they're all um, uh, very carefully staying in line with the United States. I mean, the interesting thing about Russia, I would say, is that, you know, with Putin now coming back, I mean, in many ways, Russia doesn't want to see this either because they think one of the reasons that uh, the United States or one of the excuses the United States uses to pursue missile defense is North Korea. And so Putin, when he was previously president, actually tried to engage North Korea and offer, you know, to launch satellites for them to take this rationale away. So I think. The Russians are, are also very much against this.
1: Do you all agree that uh, Australia and Japan are pretty much on the same page with us? Sure. Uh, I guess if there's any good news, I guess. Sure.
2: And obviously, South Korea, I mean, especially sa- after the attack on, the, on Waipido, the island that really changed South Korea for the foreseeable future when you know, every South Korean was watching on his handheld device artillery land and kill civilians, that changed South Korea for the foreseeable future, that they're not to stand for North Korean provocations and uh, done a lot of work to make sure they're prepared for future ones.
1: Well, thank you all very much. And thank you, Victor. Congratulations on a fine piece of work. Thanks, Thank you, thank you all.